Thank you very much. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to the ISACOS webinar series and today presenting on the title Picking Winners. How do we ensure consistently good outcomes following hip atroscopy? My name is uh, Per Hulmik. I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark, and I'm co-chairman of the ISACOS Hip, Groin and Thigh Committee. And I'm here uh, chairing uh, this meeting together with uh, a member of the committee, Vikas Kanduja of United Kingdom. We'll be your chair moderators for today's webinar. I'd like to introduce our distinguished ESACOS webinar panelists. And the first will be Vikas Kanduja from UK, then Ben Dom from United States, uh, Femi Yeni from Canada, Josh Harris, United States, Joanne Kemp from Australia, Ben Lund from Denmark, and Ajay Maivia from UK. We are taking questions as we go along from those who are participating live together um, with us today via the webinar questions and answer Q&A app that you can find in the bottom of the screen. Thank you once again for attending this webinar. And with that, let's begin. The first speaker will be Vikas Kanduja from London, UK. Please, Vikas. Uh, thank you very much for, for the kind introduction. So I'll set the scene for factors affecting outcomes following uh, hip arthroscopy. Uh, these are my disclosures and none of them are directly relevant uh, to this talk. So obviously, if you look at the history of uh, hip arthroscopy, first uh, described by Berman in uh, 1931, and after he did these cadaveric experiments, he basically said that it was manifestly impossible to insert a needle between the head of the femur and the acetabulum. And that along with the complex nature of the hip joint and lack of interest in sports medicine meant that for about 50 years, there wasn't any growth in hip arthroscopy. There's renewed interest in the 1980s because of sports medicine, but the real kickoff actually happened in 1999 to 2002 when femoroacetabular impingement was described by the Swiss group. And then 2000 and onwards, we've seen rapid growth and advance to the extent that the International Society of Hip Arthroscopy was formed in 2008. And this was the first meeting uh, in New York City attended by over 250 surgeons from around the world. And since then, then there has been a tidal wave, both in the number of hip arthroscopies being performed. And it's probably the only procedure which has risen or grown uh, to that much of an extent, projected uh, increase of 13, 88% by 2023 in the UK alone. And similarly with the number of publications on hip arthroscopy growing rapidly as the years have gone by. But what about the results and the outcomes following this procedure? Now, if you look at individual series uh, coming from various centers around the world or be it randomized controlled trials, and these are two uh, multi-center randomized control trials uh, published in the Lancet and BMJ from the UK, or if you look at the registries, there is an element of poor outcomes or less favorable outcomes in our patients. Although we are getting consistently good outcomes in terms of improving IHOT-12s from where we started off for FAI surgery and EQ5Ds, be it for CAM uh, or for PINSA, there are a number of patients who are not happy following this procedure. 
And probably as far as FAI is concerned, 25% of the primary cam dissection surgeries are incomplete. About five to 10% of the hip arthroscopies require revision arthroscopy. This is UK data by AJ Malvia. About 80 to 90% of the revisions actually have residual FAIs. And revision rates are increasing. And that may be because there is a failure to understand the anatomy of the cam, failure to access the whole cam arthroscopically, failure to understand the dynamics in terms of who requires it and who doesn't, and failure to address the learning curve itself. Now, if you look at the learning curve and various papers published on it, it basically ranges from about 100 cases uh, to 225 cases to about 30 cases. So there is a variability there. But there is no doubt that you need a structured approach to hip arthroscopy training if you're really interested in it, right from a fellowship in young adult hip surgery to cadaveric skills training, simulation training, and then mentored independent practice. And that's another aspect of it. But essentially, today's session is about picking winners. Could we stratify the disease process and could we look at which patients are actually going to be doing well? Because at the end of the day, we want excellent outcomes which is going to be dependent on the patient, which is going to be dependent on the morphology of that hip, and which is going to be dependent on the technical ability of the surgeon who's actually performing the procedure. So we're going to be looking at registries, both from the UK and from Denmark, to look at what factors influence outcomes. We're going to be looking at the intra-articular morphological factors, which may influence our decision-making and outcome. We're going to be looking at the extra articular factors which actually influence our decision making and again influence outcome. And then most importantly, we're going to be looking at the role of muscle strength, the role of hyperlaxity, uh, mental health, and finally patient buy-in and how these could influence outcomes following hip arthroscopy. And to do that, we've got an expert panel of faculty from around the world who are going to be enlightening us over the next hour on exactly these factors which may influence our outcomes. So without much further ado, I'll stop there and introduce our first speaker, Ben Dome from the American Hip Institute, who's actually gonna be telling us about defining outcomes. Because if we need to improve outcomes, we need to first define how do we measure these outcomes and what these outcomes are. Thank you very much. Over to you, Ben. Um, so this morning, um, uh, this is Benjamin Dome uh, from the American Hip Institute in Chicago, uh, and I will be speaking on defining outcomes in young adult hip surgery. Uh, my disclosures are listed with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Uh, I will review briefly the evolution of outcomes in hip preservation surgery, uh, then talk about how we define the outcomes and uh, walk through somewhat of an evolution of uh, that science itself from the advent of patient reported outcomes themselves to comparative methodologies, to predictors of outcomes, and finally to what I consider in some ways the holy grail of defining outcomes, which is personalized medicine. Uh, and then we'll conclude. So before the advent of hip preservation, uh, a lot of people in the world lived with uh, hip pain. Many didn't know that their pain was coming from the hip. And if they did, the best diagnosis they probably got was that they had early arthritis and there's nothing to do until such time as they would get a hip replacement. Uh, 
But we've seen a rapid evolution as uh, Dr. Kanduja just summarized uh, in the science of hip preservation. And that has transitioned from open, uh, open surgery originally um, to uh, um, a period where uh, we had some debate between open and arthroscopic surgery. You can see this is a publication we published in 2011 comparing open surgical dislocation to arthroscopy for FAI. And I think uh, over the last decade, uh, we've seen a rapid rise in arthroscopy as the techniques uh, have uh, improved and uh, our indications have expanded such that today we have mid to long-term outcomes of hip arthroscopy. Now we have successful surgery rates uh, and that has itself led to development of better techniques. All of this would have been impossible without measurement of outcomes, which is the subject of this talk. So the early outcome scores were varied. Uh, the modified Harris hip score, the non-arthritic hip score, hip outcome score, uh, and many more. Uh, and uh, they were helpful, uh, but uh, did have some weaknesses uh, relative to our understanding today. Uh, basic tenets of uh, an outcome score, a patient-reported outcome score, are validity, reliability, and responsiveness. Uh, so validity means it actually measures what we want it to measure. Uh, the patient's function. Reliability uh, means that it's uh, essentially reproducible. Um, so if the patient were to take the PRO twice, uh, they would uh, get a similar score. And responsiveness means it's responsive to a change. In other words, it can measure the improvement, for example, after an intervention such as a surgery. Uh, those three uh, were uh, our central tenets of any patient reported outcome score. And there were weaknesses in all three in all the early outcome scores. Other weaknesses, the ceiling effect has uh, been a, a real plague uh, in our field. Uh, if uh, it's very easy for someone to get to a score of 100, uh, then uh, we can't measure the difference between good and great. Uh, and also, uh, the psychometric analyses of all of these scores indicated that the best measurement occurred if we used multiple patient-reported outcome scores. So most studies did. Most studies used multiple patient PROs. Uh, and that led to some survey fatigue, uh, which is where a patient gets tired and starts just circling answers randomly. Uh, PRO specific to hip preservation subsequently came about, including the IHOT 33, IHOT 12. Uh, the non-arthritic hip score uh, is an older score, but uh, is was specific to hip preservation. And these um, have all aimed to overcome these challenges with high construct validi uh, validity, uh, clinical change observable, they're more concise, uh, or at least some of them are, and uh, specific to the uh, patient group or pathology. So uh, now that we have good PROs, let's talk about how we can compare A and B. Uh, this is a lot of what we do in research is compare uh, two treatments uh, or two patient populations. Um, now, most of the initial studies were case series that did not do that. They didn't have a, a, um, a comparative hypothesis at all. Um, and that's obviously vulnerable uh, to bias because um, we can show good results in, in uh, many things, uh, but if we don't compare them, then uh, we lack the framework or um, uh, lack the um, context. Uh, case controls uh, are probably the most basic comparative methodology. Uh, they're retrospective, they're comparative, but uh, there can be confounding factors uh, if the groups are, are different. Uh, and uh, there can be historical bias. And a lot of our literature has this where uh, for a period of time, we did it one way and then subsequently we went to doing it a second way. Uh, and um, 
that those two groups occurred over different periods of time. So in the second way, we may have gotten better at many different things. And it's hard to know that the, uh, the specific difference we're looking at is the reason for the difference in the outcomes. Matched pair comparisons uh, are next level. Uh, and this gets us closer to an apples to apples comparison. Uh, we can match by a limited number of variables. Um, and one of the, uh, this does eliminate uh, some confounding factors. For example, we can match by age, gender, uh, BMI, and that's helpful uh, to bring the groups uh, to a greater state of similarity. But the more variables we choose to match by, the uh, less the sample size becomes, uh, because the harder it becomes to match. So that leads us to the, the final um, comparative methodology I'll show here. And of course, I'm not showing randomized uh, controlled trials. These are all retrospective uh, tools. Um, but uh, propensity matching is uh, a tool that uh, um, uh, we and other institutions introduced uh, about five years ago. Uh, I think was our first study uh, introducing propensity matching in hip preservation. And this approaches randomization. Uh, it allows us to control for many different confounders without shrinking the sample size. Uh, so a very useful tool. Uh, so now that we've talked about how to compare A, a and B, uh, we can talk about the next level, which is uh, defining the predictors of outcomes. Uh, and this can be done in a variety of ways. Um, in this particular study here, we looked at five-year follow-up analysis of over 1,000 patients undergoing hip arthroscopy and did an extensive multiple regression uh, model uh, with the goal of leading toward individualized prognostication. So the, this was an intentional uh, step in uh, our evolution toward uh, personalized medicine. Uh, and in this, we identified uh, preoperative pre predictors uh, of outcomes as well as intraoperative uh, predictors of outcomes. Uh, and um, this is useful for us to uh, look at a, uh, an individual patient or a patient population and say uh, which things may uh, predict a better or worse outcome. But it also set the stage uh, for this holy grail of uh, personalized medicine. Uh, and I'll talk for a moment about the concept of personalized medicine. Uh, in our uh, evolution of, of science, uh, evidence-based medicine was always taught, uh, to me at least in, from the time of medical school, uh, as the pinnacle of uh, research in, uh, in clinical outcomes, the, uh, the pinnacle of, of clinical science. Um, however, uh, personalized medicine, I would argue, is even a higher level. Uh, personalized medicine allows us to use the evidence to cater the treatment to the individual patient. Now, we're seeing this in cancer in spades today, uh, where uh, instead of using the evidence to say what, uh, uh, what treatment works in a population best, the cancer doctors are using the evidence to say what uh, treatment works best in a specific patient and cater the treatment to that specific patient. And we can do this in surgery as well. And it's, uh, in my view, very important that we use our evidence to, to grow to this level of personalized uh, medicine. Uh, one of the tools that we've created uh, for this purpose is an individualized prognostication uh, model. Uh, this is a predictive model where we input a variety of patient-specific factors, including lifestyle factors, clinical factors, radiologic factors, and preoperative uh, functional scores. Uh, and we can predict uh, things such as the hip survivorship. Uh, and it can be a um, time-dependent individualized 
prognosis, uh, meaning we can predict the likelihood of uh, survivorship at any given time point. So here you can see one example. Uh, we've inputted a patient uh, who is um, uh, 25 years old, uh, and that's not a revision. They have uh, pre-op NHS of 60, uh, no chondral damage, tonus is zero, uh, and they're a high school athlete, uh, lateral center edge angles 25 to 40, and uh, joint space uh, is four. Um, so uh, some other uh, angles that we input, uh, and we click submit, and this creates a model uh, where we see the um, hip uh, preservation uh, rate. Uh, and this is essentially like a Kaplan-Meier curve that is specific to this individual patient. So at any given time point, we can say that at one year, for example, their uh, survivorship is 99%. By five years, that survivorship falls um, somewhat, but uh, it's still at 95%. Uh, so this is uh, giving us a prognosis specific to this patient, which enables us to counsel that patient and commit to a shared decision-making process to choose the right treatment for them. Here's a different patient, uh, and you see the difference here. So this is uh, still a 25-year-old, but lower NHS score. It's a revision. There's gluteus medius pathology. There, uh, there's subchondral cysts. It's a tonus grade one, uh, and uh, the joint space is slightly narrowed at uh, three millimeters. And now look what happens. We have a very different curve, uh, and this enables us to counsel this patient, same age patient, in a very different way uh, and commit to a, a shared decision-making process that may result in a different choice uh, for uh, this patient. So we can see it uh, uh, here at one year, uh, the survivorship is uh, just shy of 90%. And when we get to five years, the survivorship is gonna be less than 50% for this individual patient. Um, so uh, why it seems you must uh, have a crystal ball, please do tell me more. How can you read the future? We can use the evidence of patients in the past to cater our medicine in, on an individualized basis to patients in the future. And that's what personalized uh, medicine is as we define our outcomes. So we've covered uh, improvements in the PROs, the sophisticated comparative uh, methodologies that have been developed, how we can uh, look at our data to uh, identify predictors of outcomes and then how we can use those outcomes to create uh, an individualized prognostication model that enables personalized medicine. Uh, and this will help us to treat all the things that we treat uh, in uh, the hip. Thank you very much and greetings again from Chicago. Great. And it's a, I believe it's a wonderful opportunity to really uh, collaborate globally and, and get to know and improve how we're driving the field forward. So after a couple of technical jams, I'm glad that I'm back video and audio to have an audiovisual presentation uh, about this important topic. Again, uh, from McMaster University, I send you my biggest uh, and best regards. I have no disclosures, but I'd like to thank a few people, our residents who helped to put this together, our um, research team, Dr. Ranawat from New York and Carla Manuel Cardenas from um, uh, Spain. So essentially what happened was Vicus invited me to do this uh, presentation and really there was no evidence or data on version and torsion anomalies and, um, and outcomes after hip arthroscopy. So when we got that challenge, we went right to the evidence to put together a systematic review with top methods, robust methodology to inform best practice. So I'm grateful that in that six week timeframe, we were able to collectively work together to deliver some information for you. So first is a bit of the background, which we have um, a lot of knowledge about. Torsional anomalies 
generally can be both on the femoral side and acetabular side and can be associated with generating pain. When it comes to retroversion, we have three parameters, a crossover sign, the ischial spine sign, the posterior wall sign, and the acetabulum, but the definition on the femoral side certainly has some deficiencies. With regards to the retroverted acetabulum, we do know that it can contribute to early onset of OA, intraarticular degeneration, and senescent changes. A retroverted femur is thought to be one that can trigger premature contact and limit internal rotation. An increased antiversion in the femur, especially when excessive, can be a potential um, risk for uh, adverse outcomes or decreased um, outcomes as far as uh, patient reported outcomes. And the role of arthroscopic management with these anomalies, both on the acetabular and femoral side, has not yet been reported comprehensively, even though we have many series individually reporting outcomes pertaining to these factors. So the purpose of the systematic review really was in um, response to Chairman Kanjuja's uh, question, what is the uh, effect of femoral and acetabular rotational deformities in um, outcomes following hip arthroscopy? So comprehensively searching multiple databases, there were really 14 questions in the literature, 14 papers rather, that addressed our questions very comprehensively. And we excluded cadaveric studies, abstracts, and review papers and technique guides, and really focused on clinical studies that were focused and based on human um, patients, obviously. And these 14 studies, eight addressed femoral-based rotational uh, abnormalities, six acetabular-sided rotational abnormalities, and overall, almost uh, 1,800 patients were involved when you pool this data. And the various indications for surgery were quite vast, but a symptomatic labral tear was the diagnostic code for most of these um, patients. Like we're seeing in literature, there's a free male predominance in hip pathology, and the mean age typical of the young adult population was approximately uh, 30 or 29.8. Follow-up was approximately 40.4 months. So first challenge in orthopedics, like we do in most um, uh, subject matters is how do we measure version? You can see that the physical examination is usually inconsistent. The MRI, which is utilized in five studies, had different parameters and cutoffs. And also the MRI sequences to assess version, whether you use the transepicondylar axis or other parameters, was also not consistently reported. And then we get to the CT scan, which also had challenges with inconsistency of definition of what is abnormal version and probably needs some population norm studies to fully evaluate. And then when you look at them concurrently, you don't really have very robust classifications for how do you merge what an X-ray, CT, or MRI shows, and how do you align that with the physical examination? So clearly we have some work to do to define what on physical examinations are normal and align it with radiographic parameters. So some work to do. Regardless, when you pool data, you can see in our forest plot, and the forest plot, as you know, is really a plot that pools data from studies that have similar outcomes. And the diamond at the bottom of that, if it crosses the line of no effect means there's no effect. So the green dots are the individual studies. When you pool them together, you get this diamond shaped plot at the bottom. And if it crosses that central line that has a zero underneath of it, that means there's really no significant difference. And so if you look at femoral retroversion versus normal version, you see that we see no significant differences in outcomes if you compare those who had abnormal retroversion to normal version when it comes to the modified Harris hip score. The same when you look at the hip outcome score uh, forest plot as well. So retroversion in this scenario did not show any significant clinical differences compared to those with normal version. When you look at 
Um, other outcomes, such as a non-arthritic uh, hip score, same thing. Uh, maybe a trend, but no significant differences. And finally, the visual analog scale, no significant differences when you look at the individual scores and you pool that data. When you look at femoral antiversion, so the opposite of retroversion, you do see in the modified Harris hip score, certainly a scoring favoring normal version compared to antiversion. So potentially the antiverted femoral group uh, will have uh, decreased outcomes pertaining to uh, modified Harris hip scores, which is not always obviously the contemporary score that is typically used for hip preservation outcomes, but certainly an important thing to note later on as we discuss this. And when you look at the um, Harris um, hip outcome score once more, sport specific scale, there is no significant difference. So certainly just in that modified Harris hip score. Retroversion, really one study that compared uh, retroversion um, retroverted patients to non-retroverted patients, and there were no significant differences at, a, at a looking at a variety of outcome scales. And similarly, another score did look at groups and differences in outcomes when you look at the validated hip outcomes, again, comparing retroverted to non-retroverted patients in the acetabular side. Finally, when you look at the femoral retroversion, uh, radiographic outcomes, really no significant differences because there's, there are some thoughts that this is a more challenging population to correct as far as radiographic correction of impingement morphology, but no significant differences in um, <clears throat> radiographic outcomes as far as the alpha angle. And in retroversion, again, we didn't find any significant differences based on the extent of retroversion as far as the lateral, sedge, lateral center edge angle, which is typically used to look at um, overcoverage. We also looked at um, conversion to total hip arthroplasty because a lot of our knowledge comes from the arthroplasty literature and the femoral retroverted series had about 8% of their patients undergoing uh, total hip replacement or conversion to arthroplasty in the mid to short term. However, if you look at the antiverted group once more, this is almost um, close to double or 13.6%. So once more, the excessive antiversion patients, apart from having a decreased uh, or reduced outcomes when it comes to modified Harris hip, it does seem that their survivorship or conversion to arthroplasty is inferior compared to normal patients. And when it came to retroverted patients, no significant differences in the low rate of conversion to arthroplasty. So I think that we have to continue to work on what is normal. The normal range in the literature is from minus two uh, to 10 degrees, and then from 15 to 25 degrees on the high side. So from low to high, we have a variety of numbers of femoral version being uh, reported in the literature. Again, there's some inconsistency on how to measure these with regards to modalities. And we have to be aware that the MRI may underestimate uh, version studies. So given the heterogeneity, there was some limitation in how much and how confident we could be in making robust um, conclusions. However, there is a call based on this review for standardization of all of these terminologies in the literature. So I think that when it comes to reporting, uh, it's important for us as clinicians to report our thresholds and then to understand that this is very dynamic. We have to understand the femoral side, the acetabular side, and the dynamic interplay between version and, and torsion on both sides of the equation of the joint. Obviously, we have level four studies that were predominant, even though we are increasingly seeing higher quality data in the FAI or HIP literature. And there was certainly a large variety of reporting outcomes and radiographic outcomes when you look at how correction was uh, obtained were generally poorly reported in this series. So in conclusion, I would say that 
uh, arthroscopic surgery in patients with femoral or acetabular retroversion generally resulted in good functional outcomes and radiographic outcomes that were comparable to normal hips. And it is suggested that this is a safe intervention for this population. I think that if patients with femoral, uh, excessive femoral antiversion, be aware of the increased uh, conversion to arthroplasty in short term, depending on the degree of it, and also potential for reduced or less, lesser outcomes as far as it's being graded in the modified Harris hip scale. And further prospect, prospective studies, big data, will truly help us evaluate and understand how the dynamic interplay between femoral and acetabular side uh, morphologies um, impact our outcomes. So for that, I thank you uh, for your time. Apologize for the uh, technical glitches and welcome your thoughts in the uh, chat room about questions. And here are references which you may all have but need in the future. Uh, thank you very much. Next talk would be from Joshua Harris from Houston, United States. Uh, Joshua is uh, very well published. He has a recorded talk, but certainly I think it uh, will be very compelling. He has a focused practice in hip preservation once more and has an editorial role with the Journal of Arthroscopy. Thank you. Good morning from Houston, Texas. My name is Joshua Harris, and I want to take a moment to thank Isikos, and especially our course chairs, Vikas Kanduja and Per Holmick, for the invitation and opportunity to present on this topic, which I feel is such an incredibly important topic relevant to our patients' outcomes following hip arthroscopy, mental health, and mental wellness. Here are my disclosures, none of which are relevant to this presentation. So when most orthopedic surgeons think of mental health or mental disorders, I assume this is what most of us think. Patients with depression, anxiety, multiple allergies like this patient with 27 allergies and all their detailed reactions. Or better yet, patients with allergies to prednisone, a common treatment for actual allergic reactions. I'm sure when this is our patient's pain diagram for their visit with a chief complaint of hip pain, we jump to the worst possible conclusion about a patient's mental health. And so unfortunately, our hip pain patients struggle and it's certainly no surprise they have so many issues. For FAI syndrome, prior to even getting a diagnosis, patients will tend to see four doctors, have 3.4 diagnostic imaging tests, they'll undergo more than three treatments for nearly three years and spend nearly $3,000 before they ever get an answer or a diagnosis. Patients with dysplasia, similar findings. They see over three doctors for over five years and try multiple treatments before they get a diagnosis. Even 20 years ago, the year FAI was first published in the medical literature, in Dr. Bird's seminal publication on hip arthroscopy in athletes, nearly two-thirds of patients undergo seven months of actual treatment before an intraarticular disorder is even diagnosed. But that's just the hip joint, cam, dysplasia, labrum. This isn't even including posterior hip pain, patients that get bounced back and forth between doctors much more than the hip joint itself, between hip and spine surgeons and a large number of non-musculoskeletal providers, gastroenterologists, general surgeons, colorectal surgeons, urologists, gynecologists, pelvic floor therapists, and psychiatrists and psychologists. And so that's where mental health comes in. Does the hip pain cause the mental health disorder? It wouldn't be unreasonable to think this, or is there only an association or correlation? Unfortunately, we don't know yet. Our evidence to date is fairly limited. Our group has published a little on this recently in the three publi uh, publications that you can see here. At two years following hip arthroscopy, patients with mental wellness or disorders have lower hip outcome score lower modified Harris hip score, and lower VAS satisfaction scores. Patients do get better from their preoperative status, but it's just not as much as those without a mental wellness disorder. 
So the conclusion from our study was that patients with mental wellness disorders, they get better after hip arthroscopy, but they start lower and end lower on their PROs. A separate study from our group, but similar design, we found that patients with minimal or mild depression symptoms have greater improvements in hip outcome score and IHOT scores than those with moderate or severe depression. In that study, we found that patients' depressive symptoms measured by the Beck Depression Inventory did significantly improve, lending a little credibility to the possibility that fixing the hip may significantly help patients' mental wellness. A recent systematic review found similar findings. These patients do get better, but they have ultimately worse post-op PROs and a lower chance of clinical improvement. A separate systematic review found the same thing. They improve, but their uh, post-op PROs are worse and they have a higher chance of persistent pain at two years following surgery. So what should we do uh, with this data today? We should screen for these, these disorders better and we should utilize the results of these screenings in our clinical practices and in our evidence. And so um, this is how we do it. Brian Kelly taught us succinctly that good hip arthroscopy outcomes are largely based on two things, appropriate patient selection and skillful surgical technique. And as Dr. Bird has said, being a good picker, knowing who and who not to operate on is critically important in determining our patient's outcomes. And it's management of patient expectations that may ultimately influence these outcomes the most. And so patient selection must also include examining patients' mental wellness and especially their expectations. We need to record these and we need to analyze these expectations in our perioperative discussions because we know that mental wellness influences expectations. We know expectations influence outcome. Thus, mental wellness influences our outcome. Unfortunately, we haven't done a great job looking at the impact on outcomes, including specifically the negative ones or complications. Our group has done five recent systematic reviews of complications following hip arthroscopy in over 50,000 patients, and not a single mental health score was used in analyzing complications. We also did a survey of 56 high-volume academic hip arthroscopy surgeons, and this was recently published in our ISACOS journal. These surgeons used a total of 35 different unique outcome scores after hip arthroscopy, but only one mental wellness score was actually used, and unfortunately, I was the one that actually used it. And so in conclusion, we know mental wellness disorders are very common in a hip preservation practice. And patients with mental wellness disorders undergoing hip arthroscopy generally have lower preoperative PROs, lower postoperative PROs, but they do improve, albeit to a lesser degree versus those without a mental wellness disorder. So we need to include mental wellness evaluation in our hip preservation practices, and especially in our literature to optimally care for our patients. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for that, uh, Josh. Uh, apologies that he can't be here, but I'm sure we'll uh, send the questions to you and um, I'm sure you'll answer them via email. Uh, pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Joanne Kemp from Australia, uh, who is struggling to keep awake, but I'm sure she will uh, enlighten us on the effect of muscle strength and also the role of prehabilitation on outcomes in hip arthroscopy. Uh, just a plea to all of the attendees, please use your question and answer icon to ask questions uh, to the faculty. We've really got excellent faculty uh, from around the globe, so please make use of them. Over to you, Joe. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vikas, for the um, very kind introduction and also thank you for the invitation to speak with you tonight. Um, it's almost one in the morning here, so I hope that everything goes smoothly. I'm going to talk today on the effect of muscle strength and the role of prehabilitation in hip arthroscopy. I do have some disclosures that are not related to tonight's presentation. 
So what we're going to cover today is firstly look at what we know already about muscle strength pre and post hip arthroscopy. And then we'll look at whether or not muscle strength actually matters. Then we'll look at whether rehabilitation, so both pre and post op rehabilitation works. And then finally, just briefly discuss what we should be including in terms of muscle strength in our rehab programs. So what do we know about muscle strength? Well, a couple of years ago, we published a systematic review where we looked at muscle strength across a variety of studies in people with FAI syndrome, um, looking at men, looking at women, and then cohorts of men and women combined. And what we found was that hip adductor strength was reduced in everybody. So in the mixed cohorts and in men and in women. Whereas hip abductor strength was reduced in the mixed cohorts and in women. Hip extensor strength, interestingly, was only reduced in women. Hip flexor strength was re reduced across all cohorts. And hip external and internal rotation strength was reduced in the mixed cohorts and in women only. Matt Freak then took a group of patients who were scheduled for hip arthroscopy and classified them into those with either mild, moderate or severe symptoms based on the IHOT 33. And what he found in those people scheduled for surgery was that those with severe symptoms were weaker across all muscle groups. It's important to note here that he didn't look specifically at differences between men and women. Our Danish colleagues have done quite a lot of work in this space and they published a paper where they looked at um, flexion and extension strength preoperatively in patients with femoroisotabular um, impingement syndrome. And what they found pre-arthroscopy was that hip um, flexion and extension was reduced in both the non-operative leg and also compared to healthy controls. They then did a really interesting thing where they looked at muscle power, which is how quickly strength can be generated. And what they found in these patients that was that hip extension strength in terms of power was reduced both compared to the non-operative leg and also compared to healthy controls. And they did find a sex effect where women did have greater strength deficits than men. And then Matt Freak then looked at what happens to hip muscle strength over time. So what he did is he compared the operative leg, the non-operative leg and healthy controls preoperatively, and then at three months and six months. And when we look at these charts here, the control strength is the solid line at the top of the chart. And what he found was that strength across all muscle groups improved at both the three and six month time point post arthroscopy. And interestingly, it improved in both the operated and the non-operated legs. But it remains, they did remain significantly weaker compared to healthy controls. And importantly, these co this cohort was 75% um, men. We also don't know what sort of rehab these patients undertook in that time period. So then if we ask the question whether having strength actually matters, and we've published a paper um, looking at this where what we found is that in people who are 12 months post arthroscopy, the only um, strength measure that really seems to influence um, quality of life measured with the Who's Quality of Life and the IHOT 33 was hip adduction strength. None of the other strength uh, measures that we tested um, actually had any influence on outcomes. Then we look to see whether or not muscle strength has an impact on people's functional impairments after surgery. And what we found was that the people who had had stronger hip abductors had better performance on a one leg, on a one leg rise or a single leg squat test, better performance on a single leg hop test, and they also had stronger trunk muscles. So if we summarise um, what we know about hip strength and whether or not it matters, 
what we know is that everybody is weak in hip adduction and flexion. Women seem to be also weaker in hip extension, abduction and external and internal rotation. That strength does improve after surgery, but it doesn't get back to normal levels. That people who have stronger hip adductors seem to have better quality of life after surgery. And that people with stronger hip abductors seem to have better functional performance after surgery. So now let's um, see whether or not uh, rehabilitation programs actually work. And we published a systematic review looking at this um, last year in BJSM. And if we look specifically at the studies that looked at post-op rehab programs compared to healthy controls, what we found is that three months of physiotherapist-led post-operative rehab was more effective than um, the control interventions, which were either no intervention at all or a stretching intervention after surgery for both function and sport. And then Louise Grant from the UK has probably published the only paper that has looked at the effectiveness of prehabilitation on outcomes after hip arthroscopy. And what this was, was it was a small pilot study with um, 18 patients. And those patients were randomised to either eight weeks of prehabilitation or no prehabilitation. And the prehabilitation comprised daily preoperative um, supervised rehab sessions for eight weeks. And what Louise found was that the prehab group at 12 weeks after surgery did have better um, knee extensor and hip flexor strength and also had better health related quality of life. So finally, if we consider what a rehab program should consist of, what we can actually do is we can look to our um, recently published consensus paper and clinical guide, which um, a number of experts provided input into. And what the experts recommended was that whether or not people are having surgery, that exercise-based treatments are recommended for people with hip-related pain, and that these exercise-based treatments should be at least three months duration, and that all patients should undertake some sort of physiotherapist-led rehabilitation after hip surgery, and if possible, this should also be undertaken prior to surgery. And so how do we put all of these components together? Now, we recently published a clinical guide outlining what a post-operative protocol for hip arthroscopy should consist of. And because we only have a short period to talk about, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail, but essentially these are the key components of what a hip arthroscopy rehabilitation should comprise. And what we're going to talk about now specifically are what hip muscle exercises um, should, should be included in such a program. So based on all of the evidence, what everybody should be doing is hip adduction and hip flexion strengthening. But women should also focus on hip extension and abduction strengthening. Now, whilst women were weaker in their hip external rotation and internal rotation, what we've found clinically is that taking patients into a lot of load into these rotation positions does tend to aggravate their pain. So often you can achieve um, improvements in these muscle strength without actually going into these movements. We heard at the start the importance of personalised medicine, and it's really important that we use our objective measures of strength, such as handheld dynamometry, to make sure that we're guiding um, the tailoring of the program for the individual patient. Because while we've made these um, generalisations, of course, they won't apply to everybody. So it's really important that the program is tailored to the individual patient that our strength program should be lasting for at least three months, 
and that we can use strength and conditioning principles to try and tailor the program to achieve the strength goals that that particular patient wants to achieve. So we can look at things like muscle power versus muscle strength hypertrophy versus muscle strength and endurance. And in that pro, um, the clinical guide that I mentioned, we do talk about the differences in dosage that you can use in your strength programs. So finally, our take home message, if we're trying to optimize our outcomes for patients um, who are having hip arthroscopy using hip muscle strength, it's important that we remember that hip muscle strength does matter, that people who have better strength seem to also have less pain, better quality of life and better functional performance after hip arthroscopy. Ideally, these muscle strengthening programs should be undertaken preoperatively. But if that's not possible, we should absolutely be prioritising muscle strengthening exercises postoperatively. Priority should be given to hip adductor, abductor, flexor and extensor and trunk strengthening. And this should be a particular focus in women. Thanks very much for your time. And I'm very happy to answer any questions in the Q&A function. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And I will now introduce the next speaker, who is Bent Lund from Denmark. Thanks, Bent. Okay, thanks, uh, thanks to the chairman and uh, Teresa Koss for letting me uh, give a talk on the Danish uh, hip atroscopy registry. Um, I have none, uh, no disclosures for this uh, talk. Uh, the Danish uh, hip atroscopy registry was uh, started in 2012. And uh, it basically uh, starts with uh, the patient in, uh, uh, entering uh, pro data at the time of uh, or prior to surgery and uh, the surgeon entering data uh, at the same time uh, when he does uh, surgery. And then uh, at one year, two year, five and 10 years, uh, the patients will get an email asking them to fill out uh, relevant uh, pro data. And all these uh, uh, answers are, are put into the registry automatically. Uh, the the, uh, the registry started, as I said, in 2012. And uh, at, at the time of speaking, we have uh, six and a half thousand uh, surgical cases in the registry. And uh, we have pro data from um, more than 4,300 uh, patients at one year. We have uh, 3,000 uh, two-year data and 1,300 five-year outcome data and not yet 10-year data because it's, it hasn't been in existence for uh, 10 years. And uh, these data we can use to look at uh, outcomes. And I've picked a few of them just to talk about the less favorable outcomes. Uh, the first one will, would be a revision surgery as uh, already been mentioned. And if we look at the primary surgery outcome, uh, you can see the blue line is uh, the pre-op data, and then you can see um, one, two, and five-year outcomes are uh, improved. And we, if you look at uh, revision uh, cases, uh, they also improve. But but if we compare these two uh, 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 graphs, you can see that the uh, the uh, the revision cases they they have a, a between nine and sixteen uh, points less favorable outcomes. So they they, they do improve, but they score lower than the, uh, the primary outcome, uh, outcome data. And this is the HAGOS, it's Copenhagen hip and groin outcome. Another factor that is, is uh, mentioned uh, often is uh, what, what does the, the age of the patient matter? And uh, we looked into uh, three age groups. We have looked into the, the blue ones uh, under 25, the, uh, the red one 
25 between 39 and then the uh, above 39 the green ones and you can see the uh, the young ones score a little bit better in the hagers they improve more after two years and and interestingly the middle group actually score a little bit lower than uh, the older ones then cartilage is of, uh, also of importance. Uh, we looked at that and we, we put some paper on that from the registry and we, can, we divided the, uh, the outcomes into two groups, uh, BEX uh, zero and one, which is a no or a slightly uh, uh, cartilage uh, tear, and then two and four, which is a more advanced uh, cartilage uh, injury in, in the hip joint. And we can see a, a difference here. And, uh, and if you look at uh, the joint space with at the at the lateral sosile, we can we can uh, see that patients with a, a lateral sosile that is uh, less than three millimeter they have a poorer outcome. And finally, uh, another group that uh, is interested uh, interesting in, in this uh, in this registry is the uh, patient that had a prior PAO and then hip atroscopy and age, and and we published a, a small paper on that, and we can see that. Uh, these patients demonstrated uh, a limited clinical benefit with uh, and, and a, a large group needed reoperation and converting to a total hip replacement. And uh, we you can find our publications on the uh, PubMed if you're interested in the registry data from uh, Denmark. Thank you very much. And the next speaker will be my uh, good hip friend from the UK, AJ Malvia. Thank you. Okay, good. Right, so uh, thanks everyone. Uh, my name is AJ Malvia and greetings from uh, Northumbria in the uh, UK. Um, thanks uh, to the chairpersons for inviting me and thanks uh, the cause for setting this uh, very, very pertinent uh, um, webinar together. So these are my disclaimers uh, and I'm going to predominantly talk about the results of the UK non-orthoplasty hip uh, registry. So we came up with our fifth annual report last year. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the whole team. And if you want to look at the report in detail, please go, do go to our website. You can easily download it. And uh, the, however, a lot of data that I'll present today is, uh, is the, on the basis of the report. So just to give you a flavor, uh, this uh, was the email that I got from uh, the people who collect the outcome data. They, in January 2021, we've got more than 15,000 patients submitted by more than 100 uh, surgeons. So quite a, uh, quite a big data set uh, to look at and uh, lots of surgeons contributing. And that is the beauty of uh, the registry data. You've got multiple surgeons with different skill sets submitting the data. So you get large volumes, you're able to answer more questions and uh, it actually reflects the real life scenario. So, uh, so this is what I'm going to concentrate on. Uh, so if you're looking at losers or winners, I think there are four main factors uh, which dictate uh, whether someone is going to benefit or not. So they can be patient factors. Does it depend on the age, gender, BMI, mental health as we were discussing before? What about the pathology? Does it depend on uh, the, the hip dysplasia or does it depend on uh, impingement, what type of impingement they have, does it depend on the degree of uh, chondral damage? Um, and of course the procedure, what we do during the operation, what about labor repair? Uh, obviously the argument has been put to bed, 
but you got data from the registry. What about uh, management of uh, the chondral uh, damage that you see? Because there, there will be some variability. So I'll address all of these. And of course, I'll also address the surgeon factors. So age. So in, in this particular graph, what you can see is red is uh, basically uh, patients who are over the age of 40, while uh, the results of green uh, as the ones who are young under the age of 40. Now it's very difficult to decide on what the cutoff age should be, but uh, 40 was what we decided. And you can clearly see that the outcomes of older people, older than 40 is not as good as younger ones, whether you're dealing with the camp pathology, the pincer or the mixed. So what about the gender? We've already heard that females probably have less muscle strength. And uh, as you can see in this particular graph, the pre-op scores of uh, the FAI patients in, in, in our group, females is significantly lower as compared uh, to the males. However, uh, both groups, both males and females tend to improve almost equally so. So th there is a significant improvement in scores in both the groups but the pre-op scores of females is definitely poorer. So uh, I was mentioning the type of FAI. Uh, well, what the registry data is telling us is uh, if you compare the outcomes of uh, the ones who have got cam lesion with the pincer lesion with the mixed, then you will see actually that the improvement in the 12 month IHOT score in the pincer group is actually uh, significantly lower uh, to the ones with the CAM group. So the CAM group, 27 plus improvement, while in the PINCER, 23 plus. They both improve, of course, but the improvement in PINCER is, uh, is poorer. And if you look at uh, the proportion achieving uh, uh, MCID, uh, uh, achieving scores more than the MCID or achieving scores which uh, will dictate significant clinical benefit, what you can see here is uh, the pincer group, the proportion of patients achieving MCID more than 10 and that SCB more than 23 is actually lower in the pincer group and uh, the mixed group as compared with the pure CAM group. So uh, patients with CAM lesion tend to improve actually much more. So what about the pathology in terms of uh, chondral damage? Bent has already alluded to it and then uh, what we can see again here is that if you look at the group with outer bridge four type of lesion where the subchondral bone is completely exposed, then the outcome at six and 12 months is significantly worse off as compared to ones who have either no cartilage damage or very early cartilage damage. So what about the procedure that we do for these chondral defects? So in blue is uh, the ones who just had chondroplasty, either with the help of shaver or with the RF probe. In uh, green is where nothing was done for the cartilage, whilst red is where a microfracture has been performed. And you can see that the pre-op scores is actually similar in uh, all three, whilst the post-op outcome score, the red, is uh, actually significantly lower in the microfracture group. However, you can also see that actually the scores do improve after microfracture. Although obviously we know very well that with chondral defects, the results will not be as good, but it's great to be able to show it in a registry data. So what about uh, label repair versus label debridement? Uh, uh, an argument which probably was more pertinent a few years ago. And you can clearly see here again that 2012 was, was when we started collecting registry data. And at that time, 
the orange, the debridements were many more as compared with, uh, with repair. And subsequently, uh, from 2016 onwards, uh, the number of label repairs, you can see, have been progressively increasing. This data is slightly old, so that 2019-2020 data is not, uh, has not been presented in this slide. So what were the outcomes? Well, red is where the debridement uh, labrum has been debrided, while blue is where uh, a repair has been done. And uh, pre-op scores are similar, but uh, post-op at six months and 12 months, again, the repair group is significantly better off. So there is an argument for repairing if, if possible. Now, what about surgeon volume? Uh, as I was saying before, uh, there are various uh, skill sets of surgeons. And then, of course, there will be some who will be performing high volumes in high volumes, while some would not be performing that many. And uh, what you can see here is green is when uh, in the last 12 months, the surgeons have entered only less than 10 uh, patients, whilst red and blue is when uh, they've been doing a fair numbers. And you can see clearly that at, at six months and 12 months, the results of surgeons who've uh, been doing fewer number of cases is significantly poorer as compared with uh, high volume surgeons. So clearly uh, having uh, uh, numbers under your belt uh, does help. So uh, what if you put all of these into uh, the picture? Uh, multivariable analysis has been done and this is all from the registry data, uh, this particular uh, slide has been obtained from uh, 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 an analysis that was done around 5,000 odd uh, patients. So uh, look at the yellows. Yeah. So pincer group, there's a five times higher risk, a higher chance of actually having a poorer outcome. Uh, age more than 40, again, um, two times higher risk of actually having poorer outcome and so on. So uh, BMI 25 to 30 is actually protective. So if you've got a BMI between 25 to 30, you are actually probably better off than uh, patients who've got very low BMI. And of course, uh, high BMI, we know very well, uh, do not do as well. What about exposed bone? So if you've got grade four exposed bone, there's a seven times higher risk of uh, uh, um, the improvement to be poorer. And similarly, pre-op uh, scores, if uh, the pre-op score is not as good, then uh, the ultimate post-op score and the, ultimate, the overall improvement will actually be worse. So in summary, I've been able to address all of these in uh, this presentation. What are the patient factors? What are the procedure factors? And of course, the pathology and surgeon volume. So hopefully this is uh, going to be of use to uh, people who uh, do these surgeries. Uh, it's it's a great uh, information to have to counsel patients appropriately. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, AJ, to, and to all the speakers, as you can see, uh, that all of them are extremely passionate about uh, outcomes uh, and the factors that affect outcomes. And therefore, we've just gone over uh, by a few minutes uh, please do stay on. Uh, you all have done extremely well. We've got uh, all the participants staying back. So we'll have question and answer sessions for about uh, eight minutes or so. So if you've got any pertinent questions, uh, please uh, do put them in the chat box and we'll pick up a few to discuss. Could I kindly now ask all the panelists to unmute themselves and put their cameras on as well. And then we will start off with the Q&A session. Thank you. Um, Joe, we'll start off with you because we've had quite a few questions coming in the chat box for you. So 
is it time that we actually do not put the patients on the list if they do not achieve a magical number uh, on hip strength? No, I don't think that that would be a good idea, mostly because we know that people don't regain full strength after surgery. And we also know that having surgery itself seems to have a positive effect on strength. So um, which potentially relates to the change in pain and the, and the improvements in movement and the improvements in function, et cetera. So I think having a magic number for strength, having that as a requirement to have surgery probably will mean that there are a whole lot of people who, you know, potentially are missing out on surgery, but I think we should be aiming to, to get strength to be as good as it can possibly be before surgery. Um, and I think it's really important that all patients, if it's feasible, do try um, a strengthening program before they have surgery because we've, you know, clinically we see that there are a number of patients who, once they do a good strengthening program, may be able to postpone their surgery um, once they get the strength gains that they have. So I think it's really good to try it first, but I don't think you need to have a magic number that you limit, um, you know, that until patients achieve that, that we, um, that they can't have surgery. Burr, you want to come in on that? Your thoughts? You've worked a lot on muscle strength. No, I, <clears throat> I fully agree. It's, it's, uh, it's not a muscle thing as such, and it, it all depends. We see, we've had a question also, can you treat a patient uh, who is also having, for instance, a doctor-related problems uh, and maybe some FAI morphology on the x-rays? Uh, and of course, you can do that. We've, we've also uh, published on that, and, and you can... Uh, do that so it's it's not one or the other uh, but in the indication side of it uh, I usually would recommend uh, as, as also Joe has said to uh, prehab as, as much as you can but there will be situations where this is uh, close to impossible and you would have to to be more careful with the rehab afterwards instead. Well, thanks. Uh, Femi we'll come on to you before you take your shirt off completely and get into theaters what, what's the magic number for femoral rotation, uh, osteotomies? You know, I, I know it's a difficult question, but uh, from your reading and from your personal experience as well. Yeah, I would say 25 degrees is the sort of uh, normal, high normal, I would say before you should consider that. And then of course you have patient factors, smoking, obesity and whatnot, because if you're sending them down the path of an osteotomy for correction, then you have to make sure they hit the criteria for those, that operation as well. And then, of course, patients come in preloaded that the arthroscopic innovation intervention is the best way to go and don't want to have uh, sometimes the osteotomy. So having that conversation and sometimes breaking it up to multiple visits is important. But, you know, I think 25 on the high side and minus 10 on the low side um, are sort of soft numbers you can hang your hat on. Great, thank you. We've got a question coming in from uh, Preeti Srivastava. It says, which muscles are really focused and strengthened by therapists and concerned after a hip arthroscopy? So Joe, would you, would you want to answer that? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So you do need to assess the patient individually to identify where their deficits are. I think that's the most important thing. But if we take a general view based on what we know in the literature, it does appear that we should be really targeting the hip adductor muscle group. And that sort of fits with the work that um, Per and his team have done in um, where there is a lot of overlap between the adductor related groin pain and um, people with conditions such as FAI syndrome. 
The hip flexor muscles are also really, really important. Um, and then, as we spoke about before, in women, it's important to also consider the gluteal muscles, so the hip extensors and um, abductors as well. We only talked about hip muscle strength in, because we only had eight minutes tonight, but there's a whole lot of other stuff you should be doing as well in terms of improving their function, improving their range of motion, um, et cetera, et cetera, that we just didn't have time to cover tonight. Great, thanks. Uh, I'll get in a Ben, a Bent and AJ for the next question. And this question is relate, related to outcomes. Now, obviously on the one hand, we've got the registries where we want a lot of participation from the surgeons and the patients. So you want to keep the questionnaires to as minimal as possible and as uh, short and smart as possible. On the other hand, you would want to get the best outcomes and you would want to know what exactly the patients are doing. So Ben obviously has got this personalized scoring system which seems to be working well in his practice. How do we combine that to a wider area as well so that we could actually get more uptake onto the registries? Ben, your thoughts and then we'll go on to uh, Ben and AJ. Did you say Ben or Bent to, to start there? Oh, okay. Yeah, um, so questionnaire fatigue is a real problem. Um, and if you've got uh, two groups you're comparing in treatment A, treatment B, uh, and both groups get tired of filling out questionnaires, then their questionnaires are gonna wind up looking very similar even if one treatment is better than the other. Um, so it's, it's a real problem and a real major source of type two errors in our literature. And it's one of the many reasons that I, um, uh, I think that all of us uh, as researchers have recognized that when a study shows no difference, we should not conclude that there is no, no difference. In fact, we should conclude that the null hypothesis uh, was not disproven. Um, and there are many reasons why the null hypothesis may not be disproven in a given study. Um, where, where I think our readers um, can um, read, a mis read an error in our literature is when we say that there is no difference, in fact, between A and B, uh, then the reader may take home that there really is no difference. They're the same. Treatment A and treatment B are the same. And that's very unlikely that uh, two things are the same. So um, to back up to survey uh, fatigue in order to get around it, um, one, a couple of things that are helpful. Uh, one, the use of um, uh, hip preservation specific questionnaires like the IHOT. I think if you're going to pick one for this purpose, probably pick the IHOT 12, 12, 12 questions. Um, the other thing that's even shorter than that is, uh, is an anchor question, um, which is uh, basically, are you happy with your surgery and, and its outcomes? Um, one question, yes or no. Uh, and um, patient satisfaction would be one other question, zero to 10, you know, one, one question. So not, not every center is going to do uh, five different questionnaires. And those that do five different questionnaires, uh, we, we all need to be very, very acutely aware of uh, type two errors and the, um, the message that we can send uh, to our readers if we say no difference versus if we say the study did not disprove the null hypothesis, two, two different conclusions. Great. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Ben, on that. Uh, ben, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I agree with uh, Ben. Uh, um, you have to ask the questions. If if you do surgery, you have to follow up on your patients. You have to do. Uh, you have to find a questionnaire that works. And uh, IHOT would be good. Uh, Hagos, as we use it in Denmark, is also uh, um, found to be valid for these uh, patients. 
but uh, I think the main thing is that you you have to be consistent and that you have to follow up on your patients, either if it's one question or maybe 12 or whatever. It's it's important that you do the follow-up. And I, I would advise that anyone doing hip preservation surgery uh, to do some kind of follow-up uh, for the patient because that's going to tell them if, if they're on the right track with, uh, with the surgery. Thanks. And AJ? So basically, because as you know very well, uh, the, over time we've uh, discussed uh, the, what the minimal data set, set should look like. And uh, ideally you want more and more information, And that, uh, but we are limited. Uh, we, to get a uh, surgeon buy-in, the data set should be uh, uh, as, uh, 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 I mean, the least onerous as is possible. Uh, I have a feeling that over five to 10 years, over the next five to 10 years, what is going to happen is we are going to use technology a bit more. All of the information that uh, we need that uh, Ben Dom tends to collect or Ben you are collecting uh, is there already. <laughs> so the, 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 if we use technology and if we uh, use the information that is available already from primary care, uh, uh, such that it automatically feeds into the registry data, uh, we will get all the answers that we need. And uh, I, I think it will happen. Uh, and uh, it will happen over the next few years. And I think there is some push already about, uh, for it. Uh, but until then, uh, we'll have to decide on keeping it uh, as uh, minimal as is uh, possible. However, uh, obviously, we need to be able to answer pertinent questions. Uh, and uh, the data that we have, of course, uh, is not comprehensive, but good enough to give us those answers. Thanks, AJ. I think we're just um, uh, running short of time and coming to the end of this webinar. So uh, in short, in conclusion, I think uh, hip arthroscopy certainly has excellent outcomes, but you need to choose your patients correctly and you need to look at the morphology of the hip. You need to look at the patient themselves, uh, the other factors of the patient. And finally, you need to be able to look at yourself as a surgeon. What are you able to achieve surgically? And these three are most important before you embark on that journey of hip arthroscopy for that particular patient. I'd like to thank uh, the faculty who stayed up uh, at five or come up at five in the morning to one, uh, uh, 1 a.m. in the morning as well, from right from Chicago to Australia. So thanks a ton to the eminent uh, uh, panelists for actually coming onto this webinar. Thanks to Isakos. Thanks to everybody who's attended. And over to you, Per, to close. Thank you. Fully agree. This has been excellent, and it's been excellent to see these uh, very, very nice presentations. And I think we had a nice discussion. There's been lots of questions also on the Q&A chat uh, that has been uh, replied by some of the uh, panelists. So all together, thank you very much. And I fully agree with Vikas. We need uh, to be able to pick the right patient for the right treatment. And sometimes uh, you have to hesitate a little bit before you choose. Sometimes you have to dig even deeper. Thank you very much. It's been a great afternoon here in Denmark, evening or night or morning somewhere else in the world. This is the beauty of doing it this way. Thank you very much. Thanks, Adam.